dearest sister Harriet, I implore of you, dear sister, do not be angry with me. But alas, share in my joy, for I am complete in my happiness. I fear I might awaken to find this life but a beautiful dream, and my darling Joshua but a figment of the same. All is to be well, dear Harriet, for Mr. Meredith has promised to marry me as soon as he comes of age. His family will have to concede, for indeed he is a gentleman of independent means, with five thousand pounds a year. He believes my lowly birth is of no consequence for my beauty, is unrivalled in these isles. Joshua tells me constantly that nothing in his possession is as lovely as I, and alas, dear one, he is master of as fine a household as I have ever seen. I am to be a great lady for the Meredith family. He is among the grandest in this kingdom. We travel here and there in his fine coach, driven by four prancing graves, and the livery of his outrivers rival that of an earl. But alas, if he were a beggar, I would still be lost in love for him. For he is as handsome a youth as I have ever beheld. Indeed, dear one, understand me as a woman when I tell you that I ache for his touch and have, of late, departed from my girlhood. Joshua is now joined with me in the joyous understanding that I am with child. Please, sister, tell our dear mother and father that I am safe and well. Implore of them to feel no disgrace at my actions. Mr. Meredith was so bewitched with love for me and me for him that I agreed to come away to Ireland. But I, not yet being sixteen, our father's pride would never have allowed this union, we being but poor and Mr. Meredith so great a gentleman. Please ask our dear brother William to pardon Mr. Meredith for producing his pistol when last we met in London. Darling Joshua was but defending our love. Soon, dear one, as Mr. Meredith's wife, I will make ladies and gentlemen of you all. I remain your ever affectionate sister, Sarah. The story of Sarah Kelly seems improbable in terms of the extremes of her life experience. Born into the world of a Dickensian peasant, the young Sarah, with her beauty and ambition, embarked on a journey of adventure marked by romance, tragedy, degradation, social exaltation, moral corruption and violence, themes which filled the pages of some of the 19th century's greatest novels. Yet Sarah's story is all too real. The most significant work on the life of Sarah Kelly to date is The Strange Story of Sarah Kelly by Vera Hughes, published in 1988. I spoke to Vera Hughes about this work and the woman at its heart. Well, she was the sixth child in a big family of 11 children, born to one John Birch, a tavern owner, uh, first of all in Ramsgate, but in Kent, but they moved later on to Broadstairs when Sarah was a child. And now she was born either in 1800 or 1801, the date is not quite certain. Well, I would imagine that the Birches were financially comfortable and respectable. I would call them lower middle class 
people in 19th century England. Sarah, as a teenager, well, she was apparently a, a lively, precocious young girl with promise of great beauty, who would have indulged in the somewhat narrow and perhaps restricted social life of a small town, such as Broadstairs, and that being born in the middle of a very large family, she would have the secret longings of her age for a more exciting life, and more importantly, for romance. Joshua Meredith was of a wealthy Anglo-Irish family. They were of Welsh origin. They had settled in, I think, in Leash and Offley. But this gentleman was born in Dublin. He was a gentleman of fortune who took off for London in search of adventure and of women, one presumes. He had come into an estate of £4,500 a year, which was a colossal sum for the time. And so he was able to dazzle the impressionable teenage Sarah with his horses, carriage, money, and, of course, promise of marriage. That he was a cad, and a scoundrel she was to learn too late. Undoubtedly, Sarah was enthralled to him, and when they had eloped and were followed by her distraught brothers, it is obvious that Sarah made no great effort to return home with them. And when she was seduced by Meredith, it must have seemed logical, for her at least, to agree to going to Ireland with him, which she did. Well, I do believe, Sarah, she hoped and believed that Meredith would marry her and that she would become a lady of leisure, living in luxury. Uh, she did have an infant son with him, who apparently died. We hear no more about the child later on. But having suffered neglect, cruelty and eventual abandonment by Meredith, her life was completely changed. Now, as a woman, I would imagine that her role in the Meredith affair hardened and embittered her attitude to men and to life in general. Well, her life with Meredith in Dublin must have been a cruel revelation to Sarah. She was still only a teenager, one must remember. He made solemn promises to marry her, but he behaved abominably. They changed addresses in Dublin, and they lived for a time in a fine house at Kilcock, County Kildare. However, Meredith, a Jekyll and Hyde character, kept up the, all the appearance of a country gentleman. He lived lavishly and cut a dashing figure among the local society. Now, abandoning Sarah with her infant son was the last straw. My dearest sister Harriet, it is with shame and regret that I pen these words, dear one. Please do not be angry with me. Alas, I am lost to the world, and I throw myself on the understanding of your kind and affectionate heart. I have died a death, and lost my soul. Indeed, I am glad of it. The year of 1816 was o'er. I had bore my beloved Joshua a son, a beautiful boy with my golden hair and his father's dear brown eyes. I named him for my love, Joshua Meredith, our son, his heir. I had watched the life of Dublin from my bedroom window on Stephen's Green as I waited for our son's birth, for I hadn't been out of that locked chamber in many a month. I would see my Mr. Meredith come and go. Sometimes he would not return for many weeks at a time, when he did return, I would see him emerge from his carriage and hear his voice in the hall below. Never did he unlock my door. Never did I feel his embrace. Now, the only feelings that remained keen on my flesh were not the kisses of a lover, but the stinging blows of a brutish fist on my face, on my back, on my breast. A parting gift from the boy I loved so... When the time came for me to give birth to our child, a maid went to Dr. Lestrange, a dear man whose kindness and character I will never forget. 
through the pain and despair, I dimly saw him scold a boy by my bedside. The girl is in danger, he lectured. She's anemic, listless, in the blackness of depression. Foolish boy. My own dear Joshua. A boy, indeed. Not twenty and one. Oh, mother. Oh, Sarah. I hear myself cry. What a silly girl you've been. Before my darling child was laid in his cradle, I know it was over. A wife I would never be. The door to my gilded cage was opened for me to fly. I could keep my child, if I wished, with two hundred pounds a year and passage back to England in disgrace. Alas, my dear Joshua allowed me a final journey in his proud carriage. The coachman dropped me at the appointed spot, an earthly hell on Duke Street, a stone's throw from Stephen's Green. There was no two hundred pounds. No passage to England, and there never will be, dear sister. Instead, I was left with my son and a one-pound note. A girl, alone, so far from home. Pray have pity, dear one. I was sixteen years old. I cannot put ink to paper to tell you, dear sister, of the many means of my survival on the streets of this city. But indeed... My Mr. Meredith was right when he whispered that I was the loveliest thing he possessed. A possession men may covet, but none may hold by flattery alone. Men might imagine they can capture my regard, but it was in the strength of the woman of Duke Street that I have learned to conquer and rule. To fight, but not to feel. It was in the company of these women that I held and kissed my darling child as he closed his sweet eyes to the world for the last time. When darkness had fallen on that wretched day, we wrapped his little body and rags and carried him out into the night. Our shawls held close against the biting winter cold. We crept into Bully's Acre, and at seventeen... I buried the fruit of my love beneath the freezing clay. I cried until I was as numb as the night itself. Alas, dear sister, I can cry no more. Soon, dear one, as mistress of my own heart, I will make ladies and gentlemen of you all. I remain ever your affectionate sister, she was locked in you know he was a strange character he locked her in and so mm. you know well of course he did that for her it's, it's incredible poor girl she was a teenage girl he made her pregnant they had a child wonderful a boy named after him and yet abandoned her and abandoned her so dreadfully a, no, a note one pound note she was left with yes you know what, what was she to do really and uh, she had nothing she was in a strange country after all and I do think and I have said it you know in the book and so on that that was the key to her character that that ambition and really made her very determined that she would never, never be poor again.
Well, what really happened post-Meredith is shrouded in mystery and conjecture. And really, one has only to rely on what others wrote about it. For example, this M. M. O'Hara, Matthew O'Hara was his name as a journalist, that she was forced into prostitution, and we have to believe what they wrote. Another person, Anthony Matthew, author of uh, the book called Women Who Scandalised Ireland, he wrote that as an unmarried mother that she had only one recourse, and that was to take to the pavement for eight years, never knowing any other life. And the late Liam Cox had the same fate for her in his book about most. And the same uh, man called William Nash in his booklet, Loch Ree and Around It. Also from a letter written by John O'Donovan. The general consensus of opinion was that Sarah had lived in a house of ill repute in Dublin. And moreover that she was the mistress of several different men. But I think we can accept that really she had had a very... Uh, dubious life in Dublin. Her descendants would claim that rather that she was a kept woman, that she would have been a mistress and well off, or, or that she may have been the madam of a brother. I would imagine she would have been the madam rather than just a mere prostitute. I would imagine so. She'd have been in charge. Learn nothing is known of how, when or where she met Edmund Kelly as she claimed that he met her in 1821. We don't know, but it very possibly was in a brothel, where one imagines that she was the madam. Edmund Kelly was a son of Crofton Kelly, a landed gentleman over at Kiltoom, on the Atlone side of Knockcrockery, which is on the road to Roscommon. He was an attorney, a land agent and a very wealthy landowner who was 35 years older than Sarah. She would have been in her 20s and she would have been in her prime and she would have been a fine woman. She was quite beautiful, we can mm -hmm. believe, mm -hmm. because the portraits that we have, and there are two, show her as a very well-dressed and beautifully turned out young woman. He introduced her to the local gentry as his wife, but her reputation had gone before her and she was openly snubbed at a hunt dance in the locality. She was young, she was capable, clever and shrewd, and she made Kelly even wealthier than he had been uh, before. Scheming and ruthless, particularly towards her tenants, does not seem to have impinged on him. She saw her victim when she met Edmund Kelly. He was a wealthy man whom she could manipulate, and she manipulated him throughout the whole years with him. And, and she used that manipulation to her own benefit, and to the benefit of her own family over in Kent. Being working class, she a gentleman of her nephews and of their descendants. And Sarah now was Lady Sarah, there's no doubt about it. My dear niece Hannah, I received your kind letter this morning, and indeed was happy to learn that your visit to Canterbury has been of benefit to you. Your aunt and Uncle Stephen are here visiting with me, and like Arland very much. I'm very angry with your sister Elizabeth, as I think her a very foolish girl to throw herself away in such a manner. I thought she would marry a man of fortune and a gentleman. If she does marry this young man that she wrote to me about, I will take no further notice of her. Nor will I give her anything. If she will give up all thoughts of this young man, I will send for her immediately to come and live with me, as a lady of promise. I am sure that if she marries this man, she will regret it all her life, as all hopes of happiness will be gone forever. Under my guidance, she will, as she grows older, meet many young suitable men. Indeed, men of fortune, far better than this lowly, common tradesman, with whom she claims to be in love foolish and grateful girl. Alas, she is too young and too silly to know anything of the many troubles and vexations of married life which will come to punish her for her folly. This man has nothing to support her by but the sweetness of his labour. A poor prospect indeed. She will regret her haste and folly at leisure, 
Dearest niece, reply to me at your earliest convenience, and let me know if your sister will come. I take it you and your sister know that your poor mother can prevent her making this unfortunate union, as she is not yet of age. I have nothing more to say at the moment. I remain your affectionate aunt, Sarah Kelly. I mean, she really was wicked in that respect, you know, and you can just imagine her when he was uh, writing the will, you know, in 1838, her, like, sitting beside him or holding his hand practically, you know. Mentally or physically, he wasn't really uh, able to. Like, she was immensely capable, but it was uh, for herself, of course, in her own interests. She was a selfish lady, really. Well, even before Kelly's death, nephews uh, of Sarah were installed in all of the estates, but she ruled the roost as to what tenants were to be evicted, something she did thoroughly in Kiltoon, and she was plotting to do in Ballandary. Yes, I think where the Irish peasantry were concerned that she was ruthless and devoid of pity. Now, as to what her tenants thought of Sarah, we have mostly old tradition to go on, which says that she was mean, that she paid bad wages, that she had evicted whole families on the Kiltoom estate. According to the Athlone Sentinel of 1848, one townland, Corrochmore, for example, it is true, it was reported in the paper, that she evicted 20 families, nearly 100 individuals, perhaps more. And it was said that names were drawn from a hat in Kiltoom to see which of them was to shoot Sarah. She was going to carry out evictions in and again, they had a committee meeting, as it were, of the local tenants, and two men volunteered to do the dirty work. They were to be dressed as women. That Moriah, they just were coming into the field to help with the mm-hmm. work, the, the spring work that was going on. It was actually very cleverly done on the Ballandary estate, which is only about one and a half miles air from the town of Moat, in April of 1856, where she had gone to supervise work that was going on. She was accompanied by her attorney, Christopher Campion, and her nephew, George Strevens. He was uh, manager in Ballandary. Spring work was in progress on the estate, and ploughing was taking place in a field nearby, when suddenly two strange figures appeared over the brow of the hill. She took a step backwards. She, she was frightened, and uh, one of the girls in the field, which said, don't be afraid and it's all, they're only pretend no they're only putting mm-hmm. on an act as it were but she she must have felt there was, was something strange you can imagine from the brow of the hill and there were tall men <laughs> one was barefoot there were two locals tenants of Sarah disguised as women one of them whipped out a pistol <laughs> and shot her in the back of the head she fell to the ground her kerchief covered in blood the second man hesitated then fired his pistol <laughs> hitting her again on the head, whereupon both assassins took to their heels and fled. The investigation began immediately, and uh, several rewards, including a sum of £500, which was colossal money in 1856, were offered for information as to her killers. But despite all the investigation, the crime remained unsolved. This was extraordinary. People knew very well who who had done it, Mm. but nobody breathed a word. Dr. Carla King lectures in history at Dublin City University. Her areas of interest include the role of women in Victorian society. I met with Dr. King to discuss the significance of the life and death of Sarah Kelly. In a sense, Sarah Kelly is a, an anomaly, uh, a problem, if you like, because she was a woman on her own. Uh, she didn't have family around her. She she didn't have a husband um, and and therefore 
is in a sense a problem. Um, women didn't have, as I said, political power, but they didn't have much social power on their own. They had status if they had made a good match. Normally women would live in their relatives, fathers, brothers, houses, middle-class women, until they were married. So she doesn't have that kind of proper protection. She would have needed that to have got herself on in society. And we don't know how she met Kelly, perhaps in a brothel, we don't. We just don't know, but he seems to have been happy to take her as his mistress. I mean, it's, it's certainly a much better position than a prostitute. She was clearly able and attractive. There is a surviving portrait of her, and she certainly was a, an attractive-looking woman. For a man of his money, his wealth, um, his relative status, and he wasn't, wasn't from one of the leading families of the country, but he was wealthy. That may have freed him, in a sense, because he didn't have to make a strategic marriage. He could marry whoever he liked, whereas if he had a title and no money, which was very common, um, he would have had to, he would have been expected to marry money. He didn't have to do that. However, as his mistress, or even as his wife, with her background being known, she couldn't have been received in the county. She couldn't have been received by landlords' families, even with the money behind her. He is taking a risk, in a sense, taking her as a mistress openly, and but even more so if he did marry her. And he did marry, we know that he married her at least once. But she brought to the relationship considerable ability, not just looks. He was wealthy to start with, but she managed his investments and his estates with apparently great skill and made him wealthier than he was. She became a manager of her husband's estates, presumably as he was getting older and more infirm. Assessments of Sarah Kelly and her death would have varied considerably in her time. Um, And her gender is important here. Landlord assassinations were relatively rare. Female landlord assassinations were extremely rare. And the fact of her her gender, the cruel murder of a woman, um, was played up in the British press. However, that would have been read differently in the countryside because, in a way, a woman landlord is somehow seen as an anomaly and an exploitative woman landlord is seen, to some extent, stepping outside the stereotype for her gender. The famine is crucial here in providing a background to Sarah Kelly's fate. The famine was a um, huge watershed in landlord-tenant relations. A minority of landlords behaved very well in the famine. For example, Mariah Edgeworth apparently bankrupted herself as an old lady um, looking after her tenants in Edgeworth's town. But figures of evictions has been revised upwards relatively recently. There were a lot of evictions during the famine. For people in that circumstance, what could they do? They could go to the workhouse. Workhouses during the famine became rapidly overcrowded or go on the roads and start. Where does Sarah Kelly come into this? She inherited the land from her husband, the estates, in 1845 when he died, just before the onset of the famine. And in 1848, she apparently evicted 20 families, nearly 100 individuals. There would have been a good deal of bitterness 
connected with that. And they had bought into this estate in Ballanderia. And in a sense, there was a belief that the landlords who were not old, settled in the area, but buying in, were a bit more ruthless. She, coming in from the outside, may not have understood the rules of how rural society worked. She seems to have been a rather exclusive landlord. And during the famine, the 1848 to 1880 period, there were about 206 homicides, but relatively few of those were homicides of landlords, apart from the famous case of the Earl of Leitrim in 1878. So in a sense, the fact that she was an outsider, the fact that she was déclassée, um, that there wasn't the traditional deference due to her that was given to the old landlord stock, I think probably played a part, in, and added to that the belief that she was about to evict the village of Ballanderry and that the, the, the tenants themselves would have felt that their backs were against the wall and added to the bitterness that, that already existed because of the famine experiences of landlords. And uh, as Louis Cullen has put it, I think, very well, the balance between local criminality and landlord obduracy d- determined the extent to which landlords fell foul of the rural self-defence, local rural self-defence in terms of outrages. Now, what puzzles me is, in cases like this, there was usually a good deal of warning given, though she had been warned by her building contractor that she was in danger. But but usually there was a kind of um, rising scale of outrage or warning going like this. Normally there would be a threatening letter. Then there might be maiming of livestock or burning down of a barn or something or shooting at but not hitting a landlord before they were actually killed. Why she wasn't warned in this case we don't know and it may be that the fear of the eviction of Ballanderry came very suddenly. She was about to leave for England and it may be that it was only then that the tenants came to the conclusion that she was going to carry out evictions in her absence and that they they were trying to preempt this. Sarah Kelly died in April 1856 and she died among her tenants. She was walking on the land. Um, There were women in a field picking stones. There were men in an adjoining field working, Um, people ploughing, doing the spring ploughing. So the assassination was in the daytime. Um, It had witnesses and yet she was quite an isolated figure. The community seems to have closed ranks. She was approached by men dressed as women. Now that's interesting in itself because some of the traditional agrarian outrage was um, often carried out by men disguised as women and indeed sometimes using uh, the names of, of, for example, the Molly Maguires in America are men, but they're using a woman's name. And these people were dressed in cloaks uh, as women, their feet bare. They came up to her and she began to take fright and started to run and tripped and then they shot her on the ground. In a sense it's an, a sign of her loneliness although she was among people very few of them were her own people and she had run herself into danger, she hadn't been warned and the, with the investigation you know, there are ranks closed in the rural community which was fairly standard over decades you get complaints by the police that um when outrages, as they call them, happened, that they couldn't get any information, um, that the local community wouldn't speak to them. There were witnesses who gave witness in court, but they don't name anybody, although probably the names were very well known. They were within the community, and the decision had been jointly made um, to kill her. 
in the British papers, her death would have been portrayed as a defenceless woman and done to death by uncivilised Irish tenants. However, for her Irish tenants, here was a woman stepping outside the stereotype of what is expected of of a woman um, in terms of being a, not only a landlord but an exploitative landlord. She didn't spend her days running around with blankets and charity to her tenants. She was evicting tenants. So in a sense she's she's seen as something of a cruel anomaly. And that may have been in retrospect exaggerated as a means of um, justifying what had happened to her. It's difficult to tell precisely here. There is a an insinuation that she got some kind of a kick out of being so cruel. We don't know that. She'd lived a very hard life. She'd been exploited by people since she was 15. She probably saw life as a rough road where you, you exploit or be exploited. And to an extent, in the eyes of people today, I think we can be a bit more perhaps objective about it here she was in a situation not of her making making the best of the opportunities that rose for her perhaps today we may we may see her less in terms of a kind of she witch than as a survivor Possibly one could conclude that Sarah was the product of her own tragic life, beginning with her betrayal and abandonment by the profligate Meredith. It left her grasping at money, power and property to fill the void in her life. The marriage to Kelly was certainly one of convenience. She was attracted by his great wealth, and she or her relatives were to hold on to every penny of it. But however again, as a woman, I do feel some sympathy for her. She had an unfortunate liaison with Meredith. She lost the one child she was ever to have. She made a loveless marriage. She schemed and invested and worked hard. She showed mercilessness to her tenants. And she met a sudden and violent end. Was she happy? Well, who knows? And was it worth it all? Most assuredly not. <laughs> 